You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week I'm talking to Oscar-nominated actor Ethan Hawke. His new film, First Reformed, is right around the corner, and a great Sundance gem he directed called Blaze will hit later this year. We actually recorded this just before the Oscars back in March, so you're going to catch us chatting about that a little bit at the top, and I think some of the release date and distribution particulars hadn't been ironed out yet, so bear that in mind as you listen, and sit tight. This is Playback. So every man for himself. It was kind of a fascinating thing to do. It's it's like he took the normal three hour war movie mm-hmm. and he cut the first two hours and gave you an hour and a half of the final battle, the mm-hmm. part that you was your favorite part anyway. Yeah. And we've all seen enough movies that I kind of could imagine who Mark Rylance was and I could imagine who Kenneth Branagh was. I mm-hmm. I saw into their characters. I don't know. I liked it a lot. I hear you. We're gonna. Uh, are you able to sit forward at all for this? I can sit just because the mic uh, the whole time. It's better if you can get as close as possible. What do you think? Do you how to, how's my? What do you, do you? How's my assessment of the Oscars? Your assessment of the Oscars. You're coming for my job, man. Okay, I think you're coming Come for on. my job. Come. It's 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 yeah. It's it's a crazy year. Um, this is actually going to air after the Oscars, Good. so uh, so we won't talk we'll, about that. We'll, we'll catch back up yeah. <laughs> after it's all over. But uh, in any case. I got a lot of stuff to talk about this Let's year, do it. man. You got so many movies. You're, you always work hard. Like <laughs> I feel like you're nonstop. But we'll we'll get you know, into that soon. Yeah, I, I learned something about that this week. About are we talking? We are. We're right, recording. Well, Here we are. We, well, you know, sometimes, you know, my wife or friends of mine or I'll hear people who think that I work too much. You know, mm-hmm. that you're always, you're doing this, you're doing that. But I read that. Uh, oh, shit, let me turn my phone off. Wow. Um, <laughs> flavor. It's all flavor. I read, uh, I think I turned it off. Um, there we go. No, it's I've been reading Willie Nelson's book. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an airport book. It's called The Tao of Willie. But, <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. But one of the things that he says kind of beautifully is that his... Agents and managers and his record guys tell him he makes too much music. He's too available. He needs to. And he said that my job isn't to create things and sell them the most. My job, he's like, what I love to do is make music, and I want to do it as much as I humanly possibly can. Mm-hmm. And it was the best. When I read it, I thought, wow, that's the answer I want to look for. I love making movies, and I like doing different kinds of things, and. Uh, there are a lot of people in this life that are much more comfortable in their own skin than I am or whatever. It's just something restless that I really like to Mm -hmm. work a lot. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking that I want to take this summer entirely off and not do anything. And I, I wonder if I'll be able to, how does that translate to like gestating material? I mean, do you need to have stuff on the back burner while you're doing other stuff or do you need to go away and kind of like, when it comes to being a director anyway like you know developing something you might want to do more than just star mm-hmm. in like do you need to go away and spend time on that or do you need it to kind of be happening while all the other chaos of your life is happening I don't know it's a good question but I, I feel like <clears throat> somehow over the last 30 years I have become a professional actor and meaning I pay my bills with the craft of acting and I pay my kids school and their doctor bills and my alimony and I 
It's I support my whole life with it. And because of that, it does become kind of a job in a way that mm-hmm. I never wanted the arts to be a job. Um, I still love acting. It's still my primary passion, but it is a job. And directing and writing for me have been, in, in the best sense of the word amateur, they're, they're for love. Mm-hmm. And so do I need time? I wouldn't... I've never understood how things gestate inside of us as people and what... I mean, it's fascinating. This new movie I did that we just played at Sundance, Blaze, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, even, sometimes, I don't even know where that came from. I mean, in a <laughs> lot of ways, it's 15 years of obsessing about outlaw country music. I mean, mm-hmm. that movie comes from laying in hotel rooms for a decade and YouTubing Towns Van Zandt because mm-hmm. I can't fall asleep. Mm-hmm. To, you know, And you find over, if you do it for 10 years, you kind of learned a lot about the subject. Yeah. Or you learned how you relate to it. You know, And so what happened, how that whole movie came about was a complete shock to me. I mean, I, I was trying to direct another movie that I've been working on. I've really been, I bought the rights to a material. I had a, I wrote a draft of the screenplay I didn't like. I hired somebody else to co-write it with me to try to get it going better and blah, 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 blah. And I had all the money set up and I had actors set up and I had a, we were about to start pre-production and a lead actor dropped out. And I was despondent, you know, I, cause I had cleared nine months of my life. So I was unemployed. I had no idea what to do with myself. Now, this whole thing fell apart in my hands. And my wife said, what about you always talked about you wanted to write a movie about Blaze Foley. Why don't you do it? I'm like, yeah, but I can't do that like right now. (laughs) And she said, why not? No, why not? And so she said, why don't you just do this? Take four weeks. Take these names. Don't do anything but write this movie. And I was like, all right. And I did. And, And in a way... Not to sound corny about it, but it kind of came pouring out. Well, it's usually the non-ideal moment when it happens. I mean, like, I've got this quote from E.B. White that I've got above my desk that says, uh, you know, something like, he who waits for the most ideal time or opportunity to write will die without having put a word to pay. Yeah. And yeah, it's true. It's, it's I mean, so true. Yeah. And um, Or you want to wait for the ideal. I learned this really early on. I got to work with De Niro it was great expectations mm-hmm. De Niro only has worked he worked like eight days in the movie or six days or something and I'd been Alfonso Cuaron was directing it and so he's a real director you know he's a really interesting person and I'm on set and basically feeling like I'm doing pretty mediocre work and I'm just getting depressed about it and all of a sudden De Niro shows up on set and we're doing Meisner repetition exercises. He's worried about what's in his character's pockets. And all of a sudden, the day is really fun. And I realized, oh, he's not waiting for somebody to create the perfect work environment for him to thrive. Yeah. He's trying to just thrive. Yeah. And, and that was a big learning curve for me because I, I wanted other people to, like, create my imaginary situation where mm-hmm. I could be as good as I dreamed possible. And it's just never going to happen. Yeah. You got to go after and do it. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that movie. That's one of my favorite, uh, of Alfonso's movies. I like that movie a lot. I know it had some trouble and everything, but that was a, I, I, it's my favorite book. So I yeah, just love the modern book. rendering of it. It's and, really cool. And you know, if you watch that movie scene by scene, 
it's kind of a, I mean, his the directing of that movie. You see, I mean, he's going places. I yeah, mean, it's, there's sequences in that movie that are breathtaking. Absolutely. And uh, it had the great misfortune of coming out the week after Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Never it was Gwyneth and I had this romance. We were really excited about that movie, and Titanic came out the week before, and it just blew. Everything out of the water for a year. Yeah. You know, for a year, nobody wanted to talk about another romance. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I really love the Chris Cornell song in that movie, too. Yeah, me too. Did you ever meet him? No, I never did. Uh, one of my favorite was, interviews. Yeah, I think he was at the premiere or something, but I didn't meet him. And uh, that movie also has a, a great scene with Chris Cooper. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was a little bit before. In the Chris, museum? Yeah. That scene's amazing. Isn't he? he what cr- he's doing there is like. It's, I mean, otherworldly. It moves me so. It moves me just thinking about him. And and the funny thing is, is that was a moment where he was just a character actor. You know, yeah. it wasn't Chris Cooper, the guy everybody loves. It was. I had just seen him in Lone Star. You remember that mm-hmm. movie? Yeah. But he's a great actor, and he brought so much authenticity to that movie. Yeah, totally. Or the the art opening, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Said. Exactly. I know what you're talking about. Let's talk about your stuff. Uh, First Reformed is yeah. what this is gonna. Right. Uh, kind of air geared towards. So, so let's let's start there. Paul Schrader. Um, I saw the movie uh, just after Telluride last year. This mm-hmm. one's been around for a minute. Wonderful movie. I mean, I thought talk about going places. Yeah. I mean, he, especially psychologically. I mean, I feel like his films. He creates such a kind of psychological space. And I'm curious how that translates on the set. What kind of a space does he create on the set for you guys? You know, it's like. I spend my life waiting for moments like that to happen again. Like, you know, when I was a kid and I was on Dead Poets Society, Peter Weir created a space for characters to work and breathe. And and that's why when I was talking about Great Expectations, I always kept waiting for Peter to come back in and create a space for me. Mm-hmm. And Paul Schrader is such a meticulous writer that... The job of even doing really difficult things, real dark material, real heady material, material, a person, I mean, my character is having a full-blown, grown-up existential crisis. Mm -hmm. But it's written so beautifully that playing it wasn't work. It was fun. I mean, I, I had a great, we were at the New York Film Critics Awards. It was the year Boyhood was winning prizes, and I was there presenting a prize to Linkletter. And Paul Schrader was there giving a prize to Pavel Pavelkowski, who had just done uh, Ida, mm-hmm. right? And and Paul, that movie, for some reason, its kind of spiritual quest of Ida and what it was asking of the audience really woke something up in Paul. And, and this movie... I almost feel like he's been waiting 30 years to write this movie. It's mm-hmm. it's so clearly the same author as Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's the same voice. You feel it. Mm-hmm. You, you just... Totally. And it kind of reminded me a little... When I read the script, it reminded me of... Uh, I mean, Paul's always working, so it's different. But you remember when um, Terrence Malick hadn't made a movie in 20 years? Like, it had been like, before Thin Red Line. Yeah. It had been so... In, the second that movie starts, you're like, oh, that's Terrence Malick. It was, it was as if no time had gone by. Right. It was so clearly the same voice of the guy who made Badlands or Days of Heaven. And I felt that way reading this script. I was like, this is Paul Schrader at his finest. And it was easy to act in the movie mm-hmm. because the character was so well drawn. And he was talking about things that I really care about. And I, 
can I, I feel inside me too. Yeah. The whole movie is just asking questions in, in, yeah. in its way. You said you put a lot of yourself into it. What did that mean? How so? Um, I love the biggest part of me that like unites the part of me that wants to direct things and wants to write things and wants to act in things is for lack of a better word um whoever the essence of any of us is is our like our whatever our spiritual identity is and i that word has a lot of it just has a lot of new age mm-hmm. frou attached to it but we all have it you know we all there is something you hold a child in your arms and they're there mm-hmm. You know, they're present. They're not, they don't have a voice yet. They're not a Republican yet. They're not a Democrat yet. They're not gay. They're not straight. But the essence of who they are is present. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we all, we all have that, is what I mean to say. A search for some kind of meaning uh, in this life of why we're born and what we're here to do, that charge is something that I just think about all the time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Paul gave it voice. You feel a grown man kind of crying in anger in mm-hmm. First Reformed. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't offer any answers. It's just question, question, question. But I relate to those questions, and I feel that there's great value and intelligence in asking them. Mm-hmm. And so the questions that Toller is asking are, are things that I think about in my daily life all the time. And so that's like what I mean. Yeah. I, it felt good to play that part because it felt like I was vocalizing something that wasn't vocal. I mean, that's the job of movies, right? Is to make the unseen scene. Mm-hmm. And the job of a great performance or even a good one is to give voice to the voiceless, mm-hmm. you know, to, so Absolutely. that we all don't feel so alone. And, and that's what that part did for me. And, was there something about, like, I don't know what your religious upbringing was, uh, if there was intensity there, but was there any of that working its way into it, too? Yeah, you know, I had a brief, I mean, it's a little embarrassing to talk about, but <laughs> I had celebrities so young that it created a lot of confusion in me in my early 20s. I, you know, I was I was really, you know, I didn't want to wake up and be some washed-up, drug-addled teen idol, you know, I mean, the, the road of people who have celebrity at a young age is littered with danger signs, corpses, yeah. and, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and in my early twenties, I really, for a brief period, I, re- I really, I tried to enroll in a seminary and, um, but I didn't realize that that was a graduate degree and I dropped out of college. <laughs> they were never going to let me in. <laughs> and, I was like, and then I read, you mean, I got to go to college to go to the seminary. I don't want to go to college. And, um, I had, you know, pun intended, some kind of come-to-Jesus moment where I realized that the arts could be my call. I didn't need to turn my back on the arts. I just needed to be sincere about it. Right. And um, so that's what I meant when I said that. Got it. Uh, Blaze, we started talking about Blaze there. I saw this at Sundance. Did you see the interview I did with Ben? Yeah. Oh, man, he's he's awesome. Isn't he amazing? Um, you know, Ben Dickey is, is the star of this film, plays Blaze Foley uh, uh, under undersung, uh, unsung, I guess is the yeah. word for lack of a better word, uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter, traveling bard, if you will, troubadour, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is is kind of a, I guess, an iconic sort of archetype that I find you're drawn to, even in stuff you perform. 
But, uh, you know, I know you guys met each other through your significant others, uh, but why did he feel like the right person, this unknown, to play Blades Foley? Was that something you wanted with someone no one had seen before? I wouldn't have made the movie without Ben. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's one of those weird... He tells a funny story about how it happens, that, you know. I mean, like staring at him really hard over a fire and start talking. I was pretty lit, I guess. And I was talking about Blaze Foley to him with some kind of weird passion. I don't quite remember that. I remember having the idea the next morning. But I guess I had it that night. But I've been... If anybody gets a chance, his I saw this... Is band in Philly. They're called the Blood Feathers, and they have this amazing album called Goodness Gracious. It's just a fantastic album, and because we're friends, he gave me this album, and I listened. You know, you can do that sometimes with some. I just listened the hell out of that album. Mm-hmm. I listened to it on the treadmill. I listened to it when I was driving. I listened to it like I just loved it. It put me in a good mood, and I thought for sure that they were going to break. You know the way that, and for some reason, being his friend. And I'd watch them perform live, and, you know, he's got an intense personal charisma, and he's mm-hmm. got a beautiful way about him and a way that he can move an audience. And he's very, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, it's a Texan and stuff. There's something on He has this weird thing that we don't aren't seeing very much, which is the Southern Bohemia. Mm-hmm. You know, that you have this idea that the South, if you watch the news, that the South is just chock full of uh, arrogant, redneck, ding-dong people who aren't, you know, it's just not true. And that the South is full of all kinds of people, good and bad and beautiful and indifferent and, you know, but there is a long legacy of which, you know, we were earlier talking about Willie Nelson, but Willie's one of the large flag-waving guys. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a guy who's really popular in all the red states who drives a bus run by peanut oil. (laughs) And Blaze Foley, in a lot of ways, is represented that kind of Falstaffian provocateur, Mm -hmm. artist for the sake of art, turn your back on commercial endeavors and live your life. You you know, it's what he kind of symbolizes. And he also symbolizes another, you know, self-destruction and things like that. But the positive way... I saw a lot of that in Ben, mm-hmm. and I was watching him chew on the inside of his mouth because he felt like he had so much to offer. And, and that's kind of where great performances can live, with, where I knew that he could come. If I could get the camera on him and let him pour all his love of music and all his anger towards the music industry and all his love of life and um, his love of women and his love of friendship and you know, the Dionysian love to mm-hmm. party and the fact that there can be value in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that kind of energy. I could make a movie about that. Who would be better to star in it than him? Mm-hmm. And if you're going to make a movie about the fraudulence of fame, you can't cast somebody who's famous. Right. You know, if I, <laughs> as much as I love Jack Black, if I cast Jack Black, as well, the whole thing would all of a sudden have a subtext that didn't smell right. Right. Because... Um, Ben knows something about what he's singing about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Charlie Sexton playing tennis, he knows something about that life. Mm-hmm. And years ago, Linkletter gave me Kazan's book. Uh, and Kazan talks about, you know, that you have to put something, re- there's got to be some real blood in the frame mm-hmm. or, <laughs> or it's not worth somebody's time. Right. You yeah. Know? And, 
So it's 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 great performance, and I was so happy he won the the Sundance Award so for cool. that, which was just like oh yeah. Uh, and I was personally pleased because I had interviewed him that morning, so I, I got my interview up immediately. I, I, it was funny because it was strange you did that interview, and I thought I before he won that award, the fact that you wanted to do that interview, I knew something good was happening. Yeah. You, I mean, if somebody charisma, like you, yeah. somebody like you is going, okay, this is a performance. This is a guy who's never done, and I want to talk. I want to spend my last day at Sundance talking to him. Like, I thought, oh, that's a really good sign. Yeah. Um, and then he won that night, and I thought, oh man, this really is good. That's awesome. Maybe we'll be hearing more about him throughout the year. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, you talked about getting the camera on him. Let's talk about the camera. Uh, you, the DP of this is the guy who shot Born to Be Blue. Yeah. Uh, where you start as Chet Baker and uh, just curious what ideas you had for the look of the film what inspired the look of the film uh, you know what kind of references you know, did you pull things like that you know what was super cool about this experience that was different than anyone have ever done is that we had no model um, there was no lookbook. there was no oh I want it to look like this movie or I want it to look like that when I was doing Born to be Blue in front of this guy. He's a, his name's Steve Cousins. And I had never really improvised successfully on film. Linklater and I had tried it in different ways, but it, 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 we could do controlled improvises of which then we would write it down and then we would shoot. But I never really improvised. And Steve, because we were doing a jazz movie, um, we had this kind of idea that wouldn't it be fun if tried to put a little jazz into our experience of making the movie, of being creative on set. And, you know, so I had some fun experience. One time I just walked into the ocean or something, and Steve followed me with a camera. I thought he would just sit back there and watch me walk in the ocean, but but he came into the water with me. And, wow. and we would play, and he would just move around the room in a way that um, was really beautiful and evocative, and it, it gave me a lot of confidence as an actor. His His willingness and excitement not just willingness but actually excitement to go dance on an edge where we might look stupid mm -hmm. you, you totally. know and that's why when I thought well I have two guys who are primarily musicians as my leads mm -hmm. Charlie Sexton and Ben Dickey I'm doing this experimental film I want to get that feeling on set that so I was chasing a feeling a feeling of spontaneity a feeling of um it can't be real life because real life is ultimately pretty tedious. It wants to be the heightened sense of real life, mm -hmm. those, those those great memories. And I knew Steve could chase that down. And we, our inspiration was music, mm -hmm. the blues and uh, country music, and we listened to a lot of it. And the guys were so playful. Alia Shawcat is so playful. I mean, you know, most young women who are like uh, blossoming starlets don't want to act with some unknown dude right you know they want to act with dicaprio right yeah, they yeah. don't want to like or you <laughs> well, well alia just dove in and she yeah. facilitated all the spontaneity and energy and steve cousins rtp you know if we watched anything it might be cassavetes or less blank or something um because less blank has a great relationship to music mm -hmm. i just like his you feel the camera just loves music. Yeah. It is music, you know. <laughs> Most music movies are so phony. The biggest compliment I got on Blaze the movie was Gurf, who was Blaze's best friend and running buddy and singing partner. He came up to me, he goes, 
well, it's the best music movie ever made. And that's a low bar. <laughs> you know? I thought it was great, actually, whenever your Chet Baker movie was out, Don Cheadle's movie was out about Miles yeah, Davis, and I thought yeah. that was a fun uh, interpretation of I think they'd life. make a good double feature in the yeah, two of them. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking earlier, I believe you said Ben has a, an original song in the film over the end credits. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's... If I could be so bold as to have a secret goal for the movie, one of mine is that Ben's performance is... It's staggering. I'm so proud to be a part of it. And uh, But... While we were shooting, there's a scene where I, I really wanted Blaze to be humming something. And I had, via Sybil Rosen, my writing partner, she was Blaze's wife mm-hmm. and partner. And, and she, they had um, an unfinished poem that was in his pocket when he was shot. And I gave it to Ben and I said, hey, man, maybe you could try to put music to this or write your own song to it. And so he kind of used those words and... It's kind of a funny story. He he, for the scene, it's where he's, it's right before he gets shot, and he's looking at this guitar in a window that he wants to buy, you know, and and he starts singing this song to himself, and uh, I ended up recording the song with Alia Shawcat singing it for the end credits, and it's it's a little bit in the movie, and then it's when the movie's over they sing it, and my hope is, what I really secretly want for Ben is for him to get that Keith Carradine slot when <laughs> Keith Carradine wrote I'm Easy and won the Oscar for best song for that movie and I I feel Nashville. like in yeah. Nashville yeah and what what Ben has done in this movie is is so remarkable and I want to I want to put that into the universe <laughs> well, that great. that could happen it's great everyone just thinks it's a Blaze song at the end uh, I know because well, he was so deep inside <laughs> Blaze that stuff was just flowing out of him that's awesome well between this and you know starting with Chelsea Walls and through Hottest State mm-hmm. and everything now this like what, what are you learning what have you learned throughout the last however many years you've been actually directing movies I guess Chelsea Walls was what 2001 yeah yeah wow um I've been learning, I think, part of why actors make good directors. Just the history of film is a long history of actors doing it well. It's because they're the same art form, really. Mm-hmm. It's an interpretive art. It's interpreting a story to an audience. And if I'm an actor, I'm interpreting one aspect of the story. If you're directing, you're chaperoning the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? And so they're very, very similar. And my point is that I just, I feel really lucky because I I learned things from Linkletter and I learned things from Alfonso and I learned things from Sidney Lamette and I learned things from Pavel Pavelkowski and I learned things from Paul Schrader. You know, Paul is really interesting because he reminds me strangely of, the only person he reminds me of that I've worked with is Tom Stoppard, which is that their mind is so sharp Mm-hmm. And so focused that just, just this utter. You know, Tom hates it if you use the wrong word. If that's not what you mean, please right. be clear. Right? Do, you know, and be clear with your work. He used to say this thing. You know, the actors are the tip of the spear. You know, and no matter how hard he works on what the message of a play is, or what the feeling of a play is, or what it's supposed to, if you, you have to deliver it. Mm-hmm. And if the tip of the spear isn't sharp, it's a blunt instrument, doesn't penetrate. Right. You, you know? And and Paul is so focused. He is the same thing. And I, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that Paul made me aspire to be 
I remember as I was editing Blaze, I would constantly find myself thinking, what would Paul say right now? Because he is a really... He hates it when people fall in love with their own work. <laughs> you, you know, he's a, his bullshit meter is really yeah. high, and, and he can't... And I love that about him. Mm-hmm. It's like... He's unsentimental mm-hmm. in that way. He doesn't think... You meet all these... I mean, all these young directors who think they're geniuses, mm-hmm. and it's so boring to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all they want to do is talk to you how great dailies are and how brilliant their costume design is. And it's like, right. just make a good movie first, <laughs> do you know? And then we can break your arm patting yourself on the back. And Paul Schrader <laughs> never does that. Richard Linkletter never does that. Sidney Lumet never does that. They never talk about how great they are, how good their work is. They never talk about my film. They never talk about their work mm-hmm. um, as if they're also a writer writing about it at the same time. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tell the truth and trying to collaborate with other people. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I... Um, I don't... Would so, you say these guys, I mean, uh, would they qualify as mentors for you? I wanted to ask you if there's been a mentor of sorts for you as a director. You know, Jack O'Brien is a director who's directed me three times on the stage. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the few master craftsmen I've ever worked with. Like, where you go, like, okay, this guy's it. When they, that expression, master craftsman. Uh, Jack O'Brien has directed... Every serious play, like, three times. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been through Shakespeare's canon. He's done Stoppard. He's done Shaw. He's done new plays, bad plays, good plays, musicals. In, in that world of, mm-hmm. of theater, um, when you... One of the things that's wonderful about being directed by him is you honestly don't care about the reviews or the audience or anything. You just want to do a good job for him. And if he like, because he has an agenda with the play that is beyond whether people like it in this transitory moment. I mean, we all want people to like. That's always the goal, but you want got to get there the right way. And and to get there the right way is to have something to say. Mm-hmm. You have to have something you're saying that might be worth listening to. Now, then they can decide if it's worth listening. to. But when you just get up on stage and try to entertain people, it's like feeding them icing. Right. <laughs> you, you know, it's ultimately in Jack. Um, I've learned a lot from him. I mean, I learned a lot from a lot of people, but but he's taken the time to be a mentor to me. Um, you know, he writes me after every performance he sees and tells me how I'm doing. I think about when I'm, even if I'm doing a movie like Maudie or something, I thought about, remember, I was in Newfoundland in the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm doing a scene with Sally Hawkins. And when I don't know what, to do or how to tell the truth or if I'm doing this right I you know when you work with people enough almost like your parents or something, I can I know him so well I know what he would say and I can learn from my what you I imagine what that is yeah, yeah, yeah you know it's a wonderful feeling that's funny um where are you we were kind of talking about this earlier I'm just curious where you're at on acting uh are there any stones left unturned you feel uh something that you're still wanting to achieve as an actor that you haven't you know, one thing I haven't been able to do that I really thought I would have been able to do is before I die, I would really like to give a meaningful performance inside a really commercial film. You, you know, like... I, What's an example of what you mean? I mean, like, really, what I mean, this is a sound hopelessly arrogant, I... <laughs> No, it's not arrogant. It's we all have to aspire. Yeah, right. Throw it out there. Like, 
you remember seeing Alec Guinness in Star Wars? Sure. And you're like, well, you know what it is to be that good in which basically is just a genre space flick, right? Yeah. I mean, and the acting in general is not very good in that film, yeah. right? You yeah. know, I mean, it's, um, he it's okay. He elevates it. He elevates yeah. it with his life. And he actually imbues Obi-Wan Kenobi with a spiritual authority. Well, you see um, Ian McKellen say, fly, you fools, right? Mm-hmm. Well, most American actors couldn't pull that line off. Imagine looking at the page and say, fly, you fools. <laughs> you, you know, tough line. But if you've done Lear four times, it's not that tough. <laughs> Let alone while you're about to fall off a cliff. Yeah, you know, with, you, with a Balrog <laughs> hanging yeah. off your ankle, right? And, but I see those men or Judy Dench. There's lots of women, Vanessa Redgrave, you know. These people who've lived a life in pursuit of something beyond celebrity and beyond fame, but then they can, in turn, use it in X-Men yeah. to great value. And I remember I went to I saw Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen do Godot in London. The place was sold out with Star Trek fans and X-Men geeks. But you know what? They were sitting there listening to Samuel Beckett and loving it. <laughs> you, you know, totally. And those guys used their... And I, it's one of the things I really, I, I really love Christopher Plummer, Donald Sutherland, and I, I look at Jeff Bridges. I look at these guys who are, you know, who have walked the road a little bit longer than I have. And I love to see Donald Sutherland in Hunger Games or something like that, where mm-hmm. it's, I really enjoy doing independent films and trying to push myself as an actor. Mm-hmm. But it's also fun... You know, when you do a movie like Training Day and the world sees it and you do a good job, it's not really what I'm after with my whole life because if you, it's all you want to do is make commercial movies. It's kind of like saying all I want to do is make hamburgers. Right. It, 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 sometimes you want to make a really phenomenal meal that's specifically made for people who really care about Fobo soup or whatever the hell it is, <laughs> right? right? But, um, but I would like to. I'd like to do a. I'd like to be in a balls out comedy, you know, mm-hmm. full blown comedy, and I'd like to do um, a really interesting performance inside a commercial movie. Cool. Well, there's a lot of opportunity lately for that. Yeah, for certainly. Sure. <laughs> uh, I wanted to touch on Juliet Naked briefly, which was yeah. another Sundance movie you had. Um, you're playing, as I said, another musician in yes. this uh, role, and you've played a number of them throughout your career. I love reading interviews you've done where you talk about music, and obviously Blaze is a, is a central part of this, too. Do you consider yourself kind of a bit of a scholar on music? Because you certainly have a deep well of knowledge on it, and I'm curious if that has anything to do with drawing you to those characters. I'm sure it does. I mean, yeah. I'm, 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 I, it's a place, because I love the art so much and because I'm not a musician, it's a place where my love is like really pure. I just love it, you know? Um, and I love thinking about it and talking about it. And I mean, you know, Nick getting to be in a Nick Hornby story to take Juliet naked, for example, is a coup d'etat for me in a certain way, because he's the biggest fanboy of music <laughs> of all, yeah. you know, he's the reigning fanboy, And so I've always loved his books because of that. Cause mm-hmm. I can geek out like that too. And loving on music. And, you know, I really wanted to part in About a Boy, and I really wanted to part in High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. And so now I finally get one of these Nick Hornby parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I think that I think it's Mark Twain who said it that all art aspires to be music. You know, nonverbal communication. Yeah. You know, um, you put on the Stones or the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or you put on Tupac, or you put on Beethoven, or you put on whatever turns you on, and it it takes you to a place that is beyond your conscious mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it's it's so powerful. Yeah, it's so beautiful, and um, it's always. You know what? My favorite part of going to church as a kid was was the choir, and when they would crank up that organ or whatever. And so, I kind of, as I've grown older, I've just kind of dropped the church part and kept the music. You know, <laughs> except on film. Anyway. Except on film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I mean, there's so much I could talk to you about. Hopefully, you'll come back uh, on the show. You're, you'd be a great return guest, I think. Because uh, I talk too much. No, because you've got a lot to talk about. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we've got a lot to cover. And I want to talk about Valerian just briefly. Oh, yeah. I had All Luke right. on the show last year, and yeah. uh, that movie just I, – I really loved that movie. I was kind of bummed that it didn't do too well. But uh, it just looked like such a fun world to be a part of, and you were clearly having a blast. So well, what was Luke that like Bisson for you? Well, is – you know, it's just an overused word, visionary and stuff like that. I mean, he's truly – Outside the pocket. I mean, I just love his movies. Mm-hmm. The Professional, La Femme Nikita, The Fifth Element. Um, I love his mind. And in a lot of ways, Valerian is an explosion of a grown-up being in touch with their childlike creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just nuts. The movie's just full-blown nuts. <laughs> yeah. And um, what I, there's a lot of things to not like about it if you want to pick it apart. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that I love about it is it's swinging for the fences. Yeah. And one of the things I don't, you know, I think it's okay to publicly criticize Marvel because they make so much money and they're so popular and everybody loves them. But the publicist the, looks up at that. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the, one of the things that they do is they they're always getting on first base. Right, you know, it's like awesome. Thank God, a Black Panther movie. Thank God, it's awesome. Oh, it's so great. But I would, I always want it to be more radical. Yeah, I want, you know, and I see Suicide Squad. I want it to be more radical. I want yeah. it to be more out there. If you're really gonna really go there, um, just break that, challenge break that mold us, a bit. Yeah. challenge us, swing for the fences, make a get a re, you know, or really make some provocative. Uh, incendiary art with this stuff. I mean, that's what Get Out did that's so brilliant, mm-hmm. you know? And I always want them to push it. And Luke pushes it. He's just nuts. And you know, the reason why that, that somebody, the execs from Marvel could be listening to this is going, <laughs> yeah, we made Black Panther and he made Valerian. <laughs> Shut up, Ethan Hawke. This is why we get on yeah, first. Yeah. But this is why, exactly. But it's why I um, really admire Luke Besson. Yeah. I admire him as a person. I had a blast with that movie. I mean, I don't do 3D too often, but I kind of was like pretty close to the screen rocking out the 3D, and he just fell into the world. I mean, he created a world, and he did this, you know, at his own shop. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I really France, to, I mean, I really, to be honest with you, I really want to work with him again. I, like, when you say, like, when I say do a good performance inside, like, I would like to get to play a leading role in a Luc Besson film and get to, you know, the way Gary Oldman in Fifth Element or... Um, just these amazing performances uh, in the professional um, La Femme Nikita. All these, like you know, I'd love uh, Scarlett and Lucy. She's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would love to get to work with a commercial artist, but one who's... Well, the great thing about working with Denzel, for example, mm. he's so um, strong and he's succeeded so much that it's like making an independent film because there's no studio and you're doing what Denzel wants. I mean, right. the, the, the brass is right here. It's called Denzel. Right. You know, talk to him. Totally. You, you know, we're, if you guys think it's a good idea, it's done. It's moving mm. on. Whereas a lot of these studio films whenever there's a lot of money attached but with a guy like luke it's like working with denzel where you're it's a big this, it's everything movie. that's yeah. beautiful about making it making boyhood you know mm-hmm. a movie off the grid that nobody even knows about it's just pure creativity with a camera yeah. right well luke gets to do that on the in the malls of america mm-hmm. and i would like to do that someday well it's good to know you have you know stones left unturned and you don't feel like you've yeah. done everything you want to do so god no that i mean you know there's whole other rooms to get into with acting, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, the movies are called First Reformed, Blaze, and uh, Juliet Naked. This will air later, but what's going on with the Blaze uh, acquisition situation? Oh, yeah. IFC is going to release it. Oh, wait. They're still doing the... They bought it that night. Okay. You, you know, just waiting been, to hear this. Yeah, they okay. just haven't made the announcement because they're getting their year. That's what I up. thought. Yeah. yeah. It seemed like yeah. an IFC vibe. So yeah, yeah. That'll be good. I've done, you know, it's the right fit. Jonathan and I had a lot of fun on Boyhood, and he did a great job with Seymour, mm-hmm. my documentary. And, you know, I think we could have done uh, better with Born to be Blue. We didn't really. But I think Jonathan's super passionate about um blaze mm-hmm. and i like i really like working with him and he's believed in me since chelsea walls great you know yeah well you'll be hearing more about these movies i'm sure uh ethan has a ton going on probably a ton going on next year so Hope keep so. working i guess if it's keeping thanks, you happy man. thanks man. for having me yeah yeah <laughs> it exa- it's exhausting happy. to watch you work but yeah. uh if, if you're if you're living it up then that's great and thanks for coming on my show i really yeah, appreciate it thanks for having me